Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Susie Ahn, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. COVID-19 numbers through the roof. Health officials in Illinois today announced 192 more people have died from COVID-19, with nearly 11,000 new cases reported. A vaccine on the way, but... Only healthcare workers treating COVID patients will get those early shots. And CPS leaders continue their push for in-person learning. We have students right here in the city of Chicago in our private schools that have been attending school since the beginning of the school year, and we haven't seen the outbreaks that people are concerned about. Those are just some of the state and local stories we've got lined up for you this week. Joining me today on the Roundup, Marianne Ahern of NBC5. Marianne, welcome back. Thank you. Also with us, WBEZ investigative reporter Dan Mahalopoulos. Hey, Dan. Hey, Susie. Now, it wouldn't be a news roundup without COVID-19, of course, so let's start with the latest in our region. Yesterday, Illinois reported more than 10,000 new cases and 192 additional deaths. Marianne, some data was delayed by the holiday weekend, uh, but the numbers remain stubbornly high. They do. Parts of the state, uh, there are ICU beds less than 20. And that has to have not just the healthcare industry, but all of us concerned of what might happen if one of us gets sick. And then where do we go? Obviously, the governor, the the health director of the state, the city, all of us, they've been, I mean, all of them have been speaking about this for months and months and months. I don't know if it's COVID fatigue, if it's folks just don't uh, believe it, but we are in a very still critical stage at this point. Yeah, Illinois has recorded 957 COVID-19 related deaths over the last seven days. That's more than any other state in the U.S., Governor Prisker is, of course, urging everyone to continue following the safety guidelines, washing our hands, wearing a mask. And uh, yesterday, he threw in a few more suggestions on how we could all help. Let's take a listen. One very important thing that you can do to help others right now is to donate blood. Getting your flu shot will also help more people out of the hospital, uh, easing the burden on our healthcare workers. Now, the first vaccines are expected to arrive in Chicago this month. Marianne, what can you tell us about the city's distribution plan? Well, the city has said they will follow the guidelines of the CDC. Obviously, they, they have to. And the state this afternoon, I've been told by the governor's office, will be rolling out more details of what the state plan will be. Um, the city is separated from the state. It, has, it will receive its own vaccine amounts, and it's small at the beginning. And yet they are expecting many, many more doses to come as the weeks continue. But if the approval is on December 10th for the Pfizer vaccine, which has already been sent, some shipments to Kenosha, not too far from here, I've been told by some hospital workers that they have already been uh, informed by their employers, be ready, perhaps within days of that December 10th Pfizer approval, as expected, that they will be the first to receive the very initial doses. From there, it is also long-term care facilities and then essential workers, those over 65 and down. But there are more than a million healthcare workers in the state. So just to give the healthcare workers those doses, it's going to take some time. Yeah. 
Well, Dan, the city is waiting on the federal government to, of course, approve two COVID vaccines for emergency use. All eyes are on the FDA this week. What, what are officials looking at? Yeah, we're looking at two different vaccines, uh, one that could be approved as early as next week on December the 10th, another one uh, looking at December 17th. And there's a lot of differences between those uh, two vaccines in terms of what temperature they could be stored at. There's one that uh, needs ultra cold uh, storage. There's another one that can be kept in a normal fridge for 30 days. Then the question becomes, what capacity does the city have for ultra cold storage? They say they can hold up to 130,000 doses in ultra cold uh, storage. So uh, then, you know, you get into who is going to get those vaccines. So we're talking about a deployment here and a logistical task that's maybe the Normandy of our generation, uh, enormous, highly complicated. And it's also going to be complicated by the fact that there is a lot of disinformation mm-hmm. out there already. Yeah. And uh, there are anti-vaxxers. I think with the misinformation that we've seen surrounding elections, surrounding um, so many public issues, uh, I think that we have to be prepared through social media for a lot of uh, disinformation. Mm-hmm. And there, there's going to be a lot of fear understandably, because of this this pace that they've moved at mm-hmm. to get to this point. And, and also, let's not forget, this is a two-shot process. Yeah. So not only are you gearing up all these folks to receive this shot, um, it, you, you have to come back either 21 or 28 days later. So it's a double headache for all of these folks who are doing the logistics. Well, we're, we're done with Thanksgiving, but looking ahead to the Christmas holiday is the state prepared for another surge of folks inevitably traveling again to see family around the holidays and New Year's? Dan, what do you think? I think uh, not at all prepared. We say that Thanksgiving is behind us, and indeed it was eight days ago, but I don't think the impact of the traveling and the moving around and the gatherings that did take place is going to be felt quite yet. Uh, But Possibly within a week or so, we could see more cases. And then, of course, the other lagging indicator of hospitalizations and, sadly, deaths. And when we look at the impact that it then has on the economy, you know, we seem to have a little bit of a bounce back when the numbers went down in the summer and uh, in the early fall. And now as the numbers go back up, you know, how many of these businesses, especially restaurants I'm thinking about, Mm. will be able to make it through the winter, much less for a year? But if the numbers keep going up, I think that uh, the economy uh, stays in a very, very delicate state. And in the middle of all this, we have not had a second uh, stimulus package from Washington for businesses, for families, and for local and state governments that have been hit hard by this pandemic. I want to turn uh, to schools. Um, Some school districts have reopened for in-person learning this fall, but of course the debate continues over whether that's safe during a pandemic. Uh, Chicago Public Schools says it's moving forward with a plan to reopen next month. Marianne, what's the latest? Well, they are uh, saying absolutely school will be opening mid-January, but it is going to be the very youngest to begin with. You know, we're talking pre-K and special ed as well, phasing in others as a time goes on, asking, though, for CPS teachers to begin reporting to school. 
We've seen across the state that there have been sort of trials and spurts and people have gone home again. Obviously, private schools have been open. Catholic schools have done fairly well. You know, the ongoing debate, the teachers' union, of course, not ready to go back into the classroom, concerned that it is just not safe. It continues to be, as other every other major city has had to deal with this on whether or not this is the best idea. And um, I think you're going to get, you know, a, a very big divide on whether it is. Yeah, well, we spoke with District CEO Janice Jackson earlier this week. She says teachers without pre-existing conditions who simply don't show up to school buildings will be fired. Let's hear a clip of that. Everyone outside of individuals who qualify for FMLA accommodations are expected to return to work just as they would be in any normal environment. And if they fail to do so, they will be subjected to the same steps that we would take in any environment where people refuse to come to work. Uh, I mean, you know, the CTU vice president, Stacey Davis-Gates, said Jackson's bullying attempt to force teachers back into the classroom won't work. Uh, Marianne, is this going to be a problem for CPS moving forward? Absolutely, it's going to be a problem. Um, we've seen the teachers' union and how powerful it is, and I think there are valid concerns on each side. Now, Dan, the, the argument CPS is making is that too many students are being left behind in current learning models, and, and it's about equity, and that's why they want to reopen the schools, give them an opportunity. Um, what's your reaction to that? What's your make of that? What I make of it is that um, it simply is a digital divide. And uh, so you have families that just don't have the same access to um, high-speed Internet, to Wi-Fi. And you see this in the suburbs as well as in CPS uh, where there are certain communities, primarily uh, communities with people of color who don't have the same access uh, to Wi-Fi, which is required, really. Uh, We all know that uh, if we're working at home or have remote learners in our homes, that you need a a great deal of capacity just to uh, make these Zoom meetings happen. For instance, if you're a speech therapist, to have uh, teletherapy, it's not the same uh, bandwidth that you need for just browsing the internet. It's a lot of video, it's a lot of sound, and um, those of us who are working as reporters from home, it takes a lot more Wi-Fi, right, to send our stories even. So you have a divide. And and some people are going to be uh, seeing their children left behind because they don't have the same capacity technologically. And I do think we should not forget the mental health component in all of this. Young people, no matter what age, they are not just thirsty for knowledge. They're, they're thirsty for companionship, and they're thirsty for being back in their routines, like so many of us are. And so that has got to be considered, too. It is, thank goodness I'm not the one in charge having to make this decision, But uh, and, and that my, my children are much older. But I'm not sure where, I, not as a reporter, but as a parent, where I would fall on this. It is, it's a very, very tough one. And um, I, I, I think it's a good thing that they are trying to figure it out and to get the classrooms open again. I'm just not sure you can mandate everybody has to be there or else the teachers are fired. Mm-hmm. That's Marianne Ahern of NBC5. Also with us on the Roundup this week is WBEZ's Dan Mahalopoulos.
Dan, Marianne, there were plenty of other stories making headlines this week. Let's take a listen. Four former executives and lobbyists for Commonwealth Edison are pleading not guilty today to a sweeping bribery scheme. All are part of the inner circle of Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan. Madigan has not been charged and denies wrongdoing, but has gradually been losing the support of some of his fellow House Democrats. When we go back to session in January, when we are all sworn in, Mike Madigan will not be the Speaker of the House. Kyle Rittenhouse will stand trial. Of course, he's the 17-year-old accused of killing two protesters during unrest in Kenosha. Okay, well, there's two things we know will show up in a roundup these days, uh, COVID and House Speaker Michael Madigan. On Wednesday, four former ComEd execs and lobbyists pleaded not guilty to federal bribery and conspiracy charges. All are part of Michael Madigan's inner circle. Marianne, tell us more about this hearing. The Ford defendants, all who are very close ties to the speaker, including his, his closest confidant, this Mike McLean, and Pomajor, the former CEO of ComEd, the lobbyist John Hooker, as well as Jay Doherty, who also was the head of the City Club. They all pled not guilty, but they were told that they're of this 50-page indictment, that the most serious charges could land them in jail for up to 20 years. As of now, they have not uh, taken a deal taken a plea deal, are, are fighting this, and they're saying no way. But you do have to wonder as more of this pressure is applied, prosecutors say they have, quote, voluminous evidence that they will begin to produce. But this is going to take a while. But it certainly does add the pressure to the speaker because of what they've been charged with, of this uh, conspiracy, bribery, and falsifying records. And that because of what they did, they received favorable treatment in Springfield. Now, now we should note that uh, Speaker Madigan has not been charged with any wrongdoing. uh, But Dan, uh, he appears to be, as, as Marianne has mentioned, at the center of this federal bribery investigation in Springfield. Exactly. Um, He has not been charged with wrongdoing. He vehemently denies any wrongdoing. But we are in a weird situation here where ComEd admitted in the summer that they perpetrated a bribery scheme, that they hired friends of Madigan to influence Madigan and to win his support for legislation that was very, very lucrative to ComEd. Now, you have a situation, again, very odd, where somebody has admitted to perpetrating a bribery scheme, but the bribe taker allegedly has not been charged. Mm. And we wonder, will that ever happen? And if it does, when will it happen? And in what form will we see uh, an indictment of Mike Madigan? But it has not happened yet. We're sort of in a very weird uh, netherland (laughs) between somebody who has admitted to paying bribes and a number of others who are charged. Actually, one ComEd executive individually, who's their top in-house lobbyist, has pleaded guilty and is cooperating. So there has been a conviction and there has been the admission of guilt by ComEd, but we do not have a a charge against Mm -hmm. um, Speaker Madigan. We're just referring to him in the court records as public official aid, but that's a very clear reference Mm -hmm. to Madigan. Well, Dan, you wrote this week about Madigan's most loyal and effective operative, Ed Moody, a a man who apparently dreams of elections. Um, He's Cook County's recorder of deeds. What can you tell us about him, uh, his twin brother, and their relationship with the speaker? 
Ed and Fred Moody, the, the twin brother that you're referring to is Fred Moody, were longtime uh, Cook County employees for many decades, almost since they were boys, and now they're in their 50s. They were um, precinct captains for Michael Madigan's ward organization on the southwest side of Chicago in the 13th Ward, and Mike Madigan is also the head of the Democratic Party of Illinois. So they've been deployed all over the mm-hmm. state to help candidates that are backed by Mike Madigan and to cement and expand Mike Madigan's majority in the Illinois House, uh, where he's the longest serving speaker uh, of a state legislature in the history of the country. But the reason that we're interested in these guys now is that Ed Moody is one of the close Madigan associates Mm -hmm. who got these secret contracts from ComEd and allegedly the secret consultants for ComEd were doing little or no work, and they were just hired to win favor with Madigan. Marianne, um, you know, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has joined the growing chorus of politicians and lawmakers calling on Speaker Madigan to step down from his leadership post. What's your reaction to that? Well, she has been very careful in how she does uh, approach this topic. And as a former federal prosecutor, it's somewhat surprising because when she was a candidate for mayor, she was all over when Ed Burke was uh, – his mm-hmm. offices were raided, and she was quick to say he needed to go. This time she has taken her time. She has been – has made her statements carefully. And so she's saying things like, I'm watching this very closely, and I'll have more to say, and clearly, you know, how can we operate under this cloud? But I wouldn't call her out in front, you know, leading the way as, you know, beating the drum to say Madigan must go. Well, well, what do you think, Marianne? Do do you think it's uh, possibly the end of the road for Madigan? I have to take the the thoughts of my dear pal Carol Marine, who who no longer is doing broadcast. She's still teaching, of course, journalism, but who says, "Well, you know, let's." Like, I've been talking about this for a long, long time, so let's see. You know, without the feds, like documents, mm-hmm. they like recordings and photos and and all of that. And if they don't have Madigan himself uh, committing a crime and proof of that. We may not see it. Well, Dan, if 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 uh, Madigan were to step down, any sense of who could replace him as speaker? You know, not yet. Um, we don't know because Madigan apparently doesn't have the votes uh, yet to remain as speaker. But does anybody else have them mm. or have nearly as many votes as Mike Madigan? Right now, we don't we don't think so. There's a number of people that are floating. Uh, their names, even the head of the the minority Republicans in the House said he has as many votes as Madigan. But again, Madigan doesn't have enough votes. Neither does the Republican leader Durkin. And um, I think it's very unlikely, obviously, that the Democratic majority would would pick a Republican to lead the chamber. But um, right now, there there are a number of members, uh, some that are floating their names and some that are probably still lying in, in wait uh, lest there be a deal that keeps Mike Madigan there and, and he takes his vengeance on them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I want to make a shift here. I want to quickly touch on another story. Um, Antioch teen Kyle Rittenhouse has been ordered to stand trial on felony murder charges. Um, he's, of course, accused of killing two men and wounding a third after a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Dan, his attorneys are pushing a, a self-defense narrative. Right. Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, 17 years old, uh, went up 
to Wisconsin during the protests in Kenosha and um, ends up, uh, I guess, uh, appointing himself essentially to guard businesses or keep the peace. And, you know, he says that uh, he was um, protecting his own life when uh, he killed two people and seriously wounded a third. Uh, There's a lot of video of it already. There's a lot of other witnesses that we haven't heard from yet who were there. I think that that's what they're banking on, the self-defense narrative. You know, the second person I think it was who he shot was someone that came at him with a skateboard. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, given that he'd already uh, shot someone and shot them dead, as it turned out, were people not supposed to try to uh, disarm him? I don't know. Um, You know, he ended up going back to Illinois and uh, being extradited uh, to Wisconsin, where apparently this is all going to go to trial eventually. Yeah. Well, well, Marianne, Rittenhouse has been embraced by right-wing commentators and supporters of President Trump. I mean, I think that was kind of shocking was Ricky Schroeder, child actor, (laughs) donated to that fund. Uh, What more can you tell us about that? Right. And then adding to all of this, the California attorney who was first involved, he's now said apparently that he's no longer going to be a part of this. He extracted himself from the case, and and it does raise some ethical concerns about him. So, you know, this is, oh gosh, it's going to be, you know, quite a public nightmare watching this. Um, it's just hard to follow all of that, of, of how you support someone killing protesters yeah. in the event that they did. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's a tough one. Well, we'll keep following it. That's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, WBEZ government and politics reporter Dan Mahalopoulos and NBC5 Chicago political reporter Marianne Ahern. Marianne, Dan, thanks for joining us today and have a great weekend. Thank you. you And that's the WBEZ Weekly News Roundup for December 4th. To stay on top of the big local and state stories and to get the context you need to understand them, subscribe to this podcast. And leave us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find us. We're about a week away from Sasha Ann Simons taking over the host chair at Reset. We know you're going to love her as much as we do. In the meantime, watch for our weekend podcast with Dr. Mia Teramina answering the latest COVID-19 related questions. I'm Susie Ann. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you back here soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.